you are listening to Single Sirs. My name is Arno Martire, and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio. Conrad Speckert is a recent graduate from architecture school and previously an architectural designer at Supercool and KPMB in Toronto, as well as offices in Japan and Germany. He's currently working on a proposal to allow for single-stair apartment buildings in the National Building Code of Canada. More broadly, he's interested in policy solutions that address or combine housing and climate crises. So thank you very much, Conrad, for being on the show. My pleasure to be here. So today we're going to talk about uh, single-stair buildings and why they might provide solutions to the housing crisis. Before we do so, can you tell us who you are and what you do in your own words in three sentences or less? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, yeah, I've recently graduated from architecture school. Uh, I did my undergrad in Ontario at Waterloo and my master's at McGill. Um, and what I've become really interested in is, is the issue of housing, especially around uh, the missing middle. Uh, and just how this can really deal with questions of affordability. And yeah, currently I spend my days working on the code change, which is kind of a continuation of uh, what I've done as my thesis project, uh, which is all about single stair buildings in Canada. Okay, so before we jump into the single staircase buildings, um, can you tell us a little bit more about that uh, effort or project you're working on of the code change? Like, have you been mandated by someone or it's something you're doing independently how is that working for you uh no i, w I wish someone had told me to do this but instead I, i i chose to um and uh this basically began as um uh, yeah a thesis project so for four months of, of research where i started to look at what other jurisdictions allow um the types of you know multi-unit buildings that that are possible And uh, that work was really well received. Um, and given the most the recent kind of pressure and timing around issues of housing affordability, I've been really encouraged um, by other architects um, and then got some funding through a kind of federal grant to actually develop this into a code change and submit it uh, for the federal uh, or the national building code. So you're, you're working on the changes and you're going to submit them to the... I guess, regulatory authority at some point in the hopes that they'll change the code based on your recommendations? Yes. yes. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about single staircase buildings and, and what are they exactly? So single staircase buildings, which um, you'll hear uh, some people, especially uh, Michael Eliasson, who talks about a lot as well, uh, refer to it as point access blocks, is um, a building that has one exit stair. So, in, for instance, in, in North America, mostly for apartment buildings, we have a corridor with two exit stairs at either end. 
Um, but there's a way more flexibility kind of in the types of floor plans you can design and the way you can lay out units uh, when you can have one central exit stair. Um, it gets you really much more livable spaces, uh, you know, more, more natural daylight, uh, more better passive ventilation. Uh, and it's really the kind of dominant housing type in um, in urban environments around the world, except in North America. Uh, in North America, we we do double loaded corridors, which are pretty much the same layout. You know, your apartment building is laid out the same way as a hotel. Mm -hmm. uh, and so your apartment is a, a shoebox. And, and my favorite term I've, I've heard someone use for it is um, there are safety deposit boxes in the sky. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. So is there a particular reason why we don't have them in North America? Uh, building code. Uh, our building code does not permit. Um, so in Canada, you're not allowed to build above two stories uh, with a single stair. Mm -hmm. And there's only one exception to that, which is the townhouses. Townhouses, or you can go to three stories where the stair is just within that unit. Um, yeah. But, uh, in the U and in the U.S., Sorry, in the U.S., you can go to four stories, although every city actually has its own kind of variation on that. And in, when you start to look at building codes in the, in the States, it's it's crazy how every every single city is slightly unique um, in its own way. Mm -hmm. So in the course of your research, have you found out what was the, the rationale for mandating two stairs in North America? Is there a particular reason? So... I'll, I'll give you two versions of an answer to that. Um, the Canadian Building Code was first published in 1941. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and Canada has a history of building in wood frame construction, which is combustible construction. And so one really good argument for why uh, the rules are the way they are is that in return for combustible construction, we have really stringent uh, exiting requirements. And I, it, to be honest, that made a lot of sense in 1941 when the code was first published. But uh, today, with modern fire or firefighting practices, with a really good understanding of people's behavior in fires, with modern fire alarm systems, with a whole bunch of other things that we put into our codes, um, and just a totally different way of building buildings, uh, it really doesn't reflect that condition. So I'd say that's the one. It's, it's a history of building in wood. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is that in Canada, there isn't really a history of dense, you know, walkable urbanism, which is the type of, you know, the way we see cities have been built in Asia and Europe for, for a long time. Um, and so that never meant that there was any kind of pressure to optimize the codes for, you know, mid-rise apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why in Canada, there's a part nine, which makes it really easy and, and affordable to build low-rise buildings below three three stories and 600 square meters. Mm -hmm. um, and then as soon as you exceed that, you jump into a whole new uh, basket of rules, um, which means that, that, you know, developer will very rarely be able to pencil out a project that's four or five stories. And it just pushes up. It, it, it adds pressure to go really high. Um, so, so I'd say those are, yeah, that those are kind of two answers to it. Mm -hmm. And maybe one thing just to add to it to compare is that uh, in talking to a code expert, a uh, really good piece of advice or kind of a, a description I got is that basically the older the building code is, so the longer it's been around for, um, the longer that document is. Um, you know, the code in Canada is uh, over 2,000 pages long, whereas in 
country like Switzerland, for instance, it's only, I think, about 600. And the notion there is that um, a lot of countries after World War II, they just started over with a new code. But in North America, our code is based off of, well, model code is based off of uh, codes from individual cities. Mm-hmm. So Chicago, New York, and Boston. So before I ramble too much, what that basically means is that there's a lot of stuff that's in the code in Canada today that's based off of risk assumptions from over 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you said about the double stair requirement making it more difficult for developers to build dancer or to make their performer work, really, it sounds to me like there's an analogy to they now uh, removed parking requirements that um, made developments much more challenging because you had to dig two or three stories to build a parking lot. Whereas nowadays there's maximum parking requirements that force you to either allow you not have any parking. And if you do to keep it to, to the bare minimum. So do you think if that uh, rule was removed or amended, it would make a similar, it would have a similar impact on the, uh, the ability of, of developers to make their performers work? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned the parking thing, because uh, when I first started looking into this, the first, um, you know, a kind of initial literature review, uh, Eb Zeidler, who's a really renowned architect in Toronto that mm-hmm. uh, recently passed away, you know, he built the Eaton Centre. Um, he was in an interview in the Toronto Star way back in 2004, where they were asking him about um, the new kind of mid-rise planning guidelines and um, what that would mean for the city of Toronto along, you know, avenues. Um, And he he brought up two specific points. He he spent the whole interview talking about the issue of the two means of egress and the parking requirements. And so what's really exciting is that we see now, you know, the city has removed and changed those parking requirements, which... Suggest, you know, in part, if you follow Zeidler's logic, the stair is that other big hurdle. Um, now, without a doubt, you know, zoning regulations, questions of how projects are financed, um, there, are, there are huge other implications out there. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, politics and, and um, you know, complex other regulations. But as a specific building code, you know, within the realm of kind of architects and engineers um, and planning departments, um, the issue of the single stair is huge. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and so to go back to the idea of the code dating back to 1941 and so being probably on the older side of uh, building codes worldwide mm-hmm. uh, and and it being based on the fact that a lot of buildings were wood frame buildings at the time. Is there, um, I don't seem, it doesn't seem to me that there's a lot of uh, mid-rise apartment buildings that are built out of wood. Generally, it would be either concrete or nowadays maybe mass timber or a combination of steel and concrete or maybe a concrete superstructure with like um, wood partitions. So is there even really a, a, a reason to... Like it doesn't seem like there's any reason anymore to justify that because as you as you and I both know, apartment buildings in Europe are generally concrete, either precast or cast in place. Yeah. And they all have a single stair exit. Um, would that be any different in Canada if we had more of those kind of mid-rise buildings, like say six to twelve stories? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the question of it's really a question of combustible and non-combustible construction. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can point you to uh, hunt like dozens of projects which are wood frame, mass timber. You know what we what we define as combustible construction that are single stair in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not to say that the single stairs is sort of related to non-combustible construction in any of those codes. But uh, maybe the best way to kind of describe this is that. And there's a, there's an essay which someone from the Canadian Code Development um, kind of wrote in the 1980s, I think, yeah, 80s, um, which was which was basically called the question of combustible or the issue of combustible. And what it was talking about is that for the longest time we always defined wood as combustible and concrete or steel as non-combustible. But the modern code is actually set up that it really that's really not the discussion at hand, and that performatively it's about time. So it's about the fire rating of your assembly. Like you can build a, a wood frame, wood stud building with a two hour um, uh, fire rating the same way as concrete. Mm-hmm. And so we really have to uh, sort of unwind and unwrap this and untangle this idea of um, a building is either non-combustible or combustible because that then also has huge implications on you know, the, the embodied carbon um, and the climate change impact of, of how you build as well. Um, and it's especially through what's really exciting about everything that's happening with mass timber is that you can build out of wood just as safe and the code has, you know, this was the huge push that happened in 2015 and in the, in the, in the IBC in the US in 2018 is that you can build out of wood to be just as safe as out of concrete. Um, and so that material question has really um, been debunked in the in the past few years um, through, especially through the work of the Canadian Wood Council. Yeah, and I remember in my student days back in in France, um, at the time, mass timber wasn't all the rage, but it had already kind of started taking hold in Germany and Switzerland and the more progressive, architecturally progressive countries. And and I was stunned to learn at the time that from an engineering perspective, a, a mass timber engineer mass timber um member would uh would not would withstand fire for a long time because that outer layer burns and then it protects the inside of the structure so as long as you oversize your members your structure should stand up for quite some time um yeah and it seems like in um in the public psyche and even with architects it's that wood is combustible and concrete isn't and i think you make a very good point it's maybe time to uh, uh, jettison that outdated mode of thinking and really start thinking in terms of what makes sense from a safety perspective. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'll just add to that. I was at a, a Passive House conference a few weeks or month ago, and there was a straw bale, a prefabricated straw bale manufacturer from Eastern Europe um, mm-hmm. who was giving a presentation. And I, it, it, it boggled my mind, but they actually have produced a, and like a straw bale, right? Like that just seems to me like the most combustible thing in the world. Yeah. They have created a straw bale panel that I think has the, the fire rating, it's either 90 minutes or two hours. Like, oh, wow. Incredible. So um, it has, I'm supposing it has uh, non-combustible finishes on the outside. Yeah. Is that what it is? And it probably, whatever the, the glue or, yeah, the kind of... I'm, yeah, I really should have paid closer attention to, to to really know exactly what it is that they've done. But but you know the stringent fire testing that these that these new materials have to go through to be able to conform to these to the codes. Um, yeah, they 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 met the requirements. And the guy actually showed a, a video 
because it's got a wood frame and then it's infill. Basically, the insulation is the straw bale. And in the fire testing video, the wood of the frame burned first and burned far more vigorously than the straw bale in between. Like, That's it's interesting. That's, the logic on its head. Yeah. And it goes to show that... Um, and that's more of a general comment about technology. You can't really predict what new technologies will allow you to do even in the near future. So um, that, yeah, that's why maybe it's time to, uh, to, to revise the building code or even sc scrap it and start from scratch, as you said. I don't know if that's a good well, idea. No, but... no, I, I won't say that. I'll get, I'll get shot when I apply my, when I submit my building code change, if I ever say well, that. You didn't, but I did. So you're safe. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> so that's... I mean, one, just one thing I can add to that is that, you know, the, the big issue with new materials and, and new practices and like with, with the, 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 the combined crises right now of housing and climate, um, you know, there are solutions out there um, that can really address both these issues mm -hmm. that we see happening in other jurisdictions. And what's frustrating is that the code in Canada explicitly says that you can do, you know, alternative solutions. So when you go for a building permit, if you think you can exceed the life safety of what's considered acceptable in the code, you yeah. can for that alternative solution. But then you But have to fund your own testing, right? You have to fund your own testing, exactly. You yeah. cannot, there's no mechanism to do that, you know, upfront and collaboratively. You not. You can't do it until you get to building permit. And by the time you're at building permit, all decisions have been made, essentially. And so it's an, it's an incredibly risky thing. But it, it does happen for lots of stuff. The question of the single stair, though, it, you know, the single stair requirement has been in the code since the beginning, The mantra, you must have two means of egress, is something that is, is drilled into the brains of architecture students from, I mean, from first year. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you're going up against, you know, a Goliath of assumptions uh, when you try to do an alternative solutions for that, which is why, quite reasonably, no one does it. Yeah, and, and to be fair, I think the, the housing crisis, although I hate this term crisis because it's so overused, <laughs> um, I'm sure the building code change could have a serious impact on, on making it easier. But um, I personally, and, and this is a whole other topic for another podcast, but I personally think it's the, the zoning issue and the, yeah. the politicians' lack of balls to be direct to change the codes to allow more mid-rise as of right. Um, and uh, the building code would help if you didn't have a second stair uh, requirement. But there's also like an entire, I think it's like 70, 60 or 70% of a city like Toronto where you can only build single family houses as of right. This is insane. This is madness. And I've talked about this many times on this podcast with Chris You should Polk. have a ticker counting how many times someone says yellow belt in your, in your podcast. Yeah, and, and if I had a drink every time, I'd be yeah. drunk by <laughs> the end of the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, the, the, to, to say, you know, I don't talk about, if anybody thinks that I'm, I'm coming in here and proclaiming that single stair is a silver bullet, it, no, it's not a silver bullet. Um, the issue of zoning, the issue of, you know, um, acceptable levels of profit in a, in a pro forma and the degree of, you know, cap capitalism that we insist on, like whatever you want to, zoom out scale there are huge huge bigger issues at stake here uh, but what's interesting about the single stair is you know we don't need to hold an election to deal with the single stair 
Yeah. We don't need to go door to door and knock on everybody's house or deal with the NIMBY that shows up to a council meeting for single stair. Single stair is within this, within this, the, the control and, and subject matter of professionals in this industry. So we should be able to have a really adult conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And probably no one cares like outside of the profession anyway. So if that requirement were removed, like people wouldn't even give us a, a thought about it. I mean, I've been accused by by some people of trying to kill people, but that's yeah. Wrong. But you, I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> that's always going to happen. I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your your research and and what motivated to you to do your thesis on the subject in the first place. Like, how did that come about? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in in Europe. Uh, I grew up in a single stair building. Uh, it was three stories and uh, five apartments. Um, uh, when I started architecture school in Canada, again in first year, we had a housing project and multi units. So we did, I think, three stories. And the, the professors made it very explicit. You need to have two means of egress. And at the time, I didn't realize, you know, the significance of that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, But then after architecture school, I was working in Toronto, as you mentioned, um, doing a lot of mid-rise, you know, six to 10 story housing. And um, I completely understand why it is that way, but everything was double loaded corridor, you know, 22 to 25 meter deep floor plans. So each unit just is is like a shoebox and really repetitive. And you'd get these long corridors because the code lets you do a corridor, you know, basically up to 45 meters, I think, yeah, 45 meters long, um, which are just dead spaces. And there's a beautiful, if you Google breaking up, it's kind of a cute name, breaking up with the double wood corridor. It's this wonderful package um, that basically just compares what circulation could be and makes everybody envious of, of what that code change could create. So there's, so there's that kind of frustration working in Toronto. And at the same time, you know, you'd see precedents of housing going up in other places. Uh, I worked in Berlin where everything was single stair. I lived in a single stair. All my friends lived in a single stair building. Um, when I was working in Japan, uh, the office, the actual architecture's, architectural office was a four-story, like brand new building, single stair. So that was actually commercial use. Um, and so when I started doing, you know, thesis and pondering, okay, what am I going to, what am I going to do this on? Um, uh, I started to just look at, has anybody ever really gone into this conversation in North America? And with the exception of the Ebb Zeidler in Canada, with the exception of the Ebb Zeidler article from 2004, um, the OAA, the Ontario Association of Architects, published a report in 2019. And I think you've had some of the people that worked on that on here before. And on one of the slides, as part of their rec package recommendations, they mentioned a change to the Ontario building code to allow for single stair buildings. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I got goosebumps at that moment because, because there it was in black and white, you know, I'm not insane. It is, it is a good idea. Um, and just decided to make this, uh, you know, the, the work for the next little while. And then increasingly, as I kind of got into it, um, it started with an essay that I'd wrote. Um, then that started, then that won a grant um, to do a bit more research on it. Then uh, turned into a CMHC funded um, big project. Uh, and it just kind of keeps growing. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to enter the profession is to develop something that makes you an expert 
and, uh, and then people seek you out. So I think you have a, it's great that you did that. And it's great that you continue beyond school. And I think gives you a huge leg up professionally that uh, now you're probably going to start being seen if you're not already as the code reform expert in the country. Um, or, or hopefully that's what happens to you. And, uh, and then, you know, lead, leading to a great career. Um, so let's talk a little bit about other places. And, and I know we've touched on that here and there throughout the questions, but what do other building codes in other countries allow that is not allowed in Canada that would make a big difference? Yeah, that's, that's probably my favorite question because uh, once you start to look at what's possible in other countries and read Uh, some of these building codes, uh, you realize just how profoundly different um, things are. So in Germany and, and Switzerland, you can go uh, up to 60 meters. So that's about 20 stories with a mm -hmm. single stair. And the, the requirements around um, you know, sprinkling and pressurization and corridor separation, these kind of um, life safety measures change once you exceed uh, 22 meters, 20 meters. So that's one example. Uh, in Japan, which again is a place with really significant earthquake risk. Uh, mm -hmm. The rules are five stories. In China, you can go to 80 meters. Uh, in Australia and New Zealand, which is a kind of you know, similar cultural um, context and background as Canada, 25 meters. Mm -hmm. And there's some beautiful projects, um, uh, examples of that there. I've uh, always France, been amazed with Australia's architecture quality. Yeah. Um, for such a small country in such a remote part of the world, I think they have some of per capita, probably some of the best contemporary architecture almost anywhere, maybe except to for Germany, Switzerland and Spain or something. But it's so it's it's no surprise that they're a bit more progressive, too. Yeah. Do you, I'm curious. Have you ever wondered why that is? Because I actually don't don't have a good answer, because it seems to me that Australia, you know, in Canada, competitive advantage wise are, are similar you know past commonwealth kind of countries yeah uh, i i don't know i've asked many people i've asked australian architects <laughs> um nobody has a, a definitive answer some people have elements of an answer but it's hard yeah. to tell I, i don't know if it's uh in the culture or you know their building codes allow them to do things you can't do elsewhere i'm not familiar enough with that But I, I've been to Australia once for a couple of weeks and, and just about anywhere I went, the creativity and quality of architecture was outstanding. Um, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah, I don't know that anyone has a good answer, but it's maybe it's cultural and they just, you know, because they're a bit weird sometimes. Maybe they're just, um, they just kind of carry Canadians that into their... Canadians are not weird sometimes? They are, yeah. but not in like the a creative, funny way. What I'm saying may make no sense at all. But Australians are, are playful, you know. They're they like when you you hang out with a group of Australians, they're gonna banter. They're gonna give you shit for having a silly name or wearing a funny shirt or not drinking as many beers as they do or whatever it is. And I think that translates into their design culture. They're just Uh, yeah, more playful, I guess, is the closest term I could use. Canadians are can be weird from a European perspective. And I am Canadian now, so uh, I'm, I'm trying to be careful about what I say. But um, 
it's more in a more conservative fashion. It's more socially speaking, Canadians are more conservative. They don't like to rock the boat. They don't like to stand out. So I think that's to me, that's the chief dis distinction between Canadian and Australian cultures. One well, is more, sense, you know, our building code is a perfect reflection of our culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. So um, just, I'll add to that a, a few more notes, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in Quebec right now, so I better mention France. Uh, France is 50 meters. Um, but if anyone, you know, listening, to this is really curious, you can go to uh, the website, um, www.secondegress.ca, uh, and there's a whole list of, of countries um, and the maximum height you can build with one stair. Uh, and again, just to point out, you know, Canada is at the bottom of that list. Um, mm -hmm. and maybe one other thing is, is uh, the UK. Uh, the UK is at the top of that list. And the UK actually has no, has no limit um, on the maximum building height you can build. And there's been a few interesting articles recently because uh, uh, post, you know, the Grenfell disaster, post Grenfell, there have been some building applications for buildings that are um, almost 50% taller than Grenfell with a single mm -hmm. stair. And the code in the UK says, yeah, this is fine. Um, and part of the way that 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 has come about is because in the UK, there's a stay in place firefighting strategy, which means that um, you stay in your unit, even once the fire alarm's gone off until the fire department explicitly orders you to evacuate. Um, and so for context in some, in the Grenfell tower disaster, uh, which was a tower, 24 story tower, which in 2017, the combustible, insula the insulation, which um, wasn't up to code and was actually combustible on the, the facade caught fire and spread rapidly um, a lot of people died uh, but in that in that case the fire alarm was going for more than 80 minutes more than an hour before the building evacuation and certainly you know the reason why that stay in place was there is because it's a single stair building there's the risk that you kind of overwhelm that stair um, never mind the fact that you know firefighters are going up and people are going down if you only have one but Grenfell was a 24-story tower. Um, and when, you know, I'm talking about this here, we're talking about mid-rise buildings that are five, six stories. Um, and there's a whole bunch more complexity to get into it as well. And I just I just bring up Grenfell because the immediate gut reaction um, to, to, that I received from people who, um, who don't like this idea of single stair is uh, to raise the example of the Grenfell Tower. Um, but there is so much more complexity to that conversation than just the fact that it was a single stair building. Yeah. And I mean, you can't because uh, that's the 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 common fallacy that that logical fallacy that people make in, in any area of expertise, not just architecture, where they'll pick one horrible, horrible incident as a justification for a rule that doesn't necessarily make sense. Mm -hmm. um, but if you think there's probably millions or if not millions, maybe hundreds of thousands of towers like that across the world that didn't burn down. So for one of those that horribly burnt down, how many are still standing up and perfectly safe is really what you need to look at. Yeah, um, I mean, Grenfell didn't actually, like Grenfell violates the code. It, it, had, it failed to produce, you know, the, the installation they used on it was um, not code compliant. Um, and in a whole bunch of other ways, Grenfell also, like that, that disaster cannot, could never repeat itself here because, um, 
the way that we, you know, sprinkler, we have a whole bunch of codes in our buildings that are above 18 meters in height. So high rise buildings Mm -hmm. Uh, in Canada, there's a really good package of rules that comes with high rise buildings. Um, So after Grenfell, you know, um, authorities in Canada went, Oh, could this happen here? And they reviewed the codes and it absolutely, like absolutely. Well, I shouldn't say absolutely not because who knows, but really um, the codes in Canada are, are nothing like the code in the UK in terms of high building requirements. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other safety measures in it um, beyond the issue of two stairs. Yeah. Um, so it's, really- a co- it's a code compliance issue. It's not yeah. a, an egress issue basically. Um, so you're, you're, you should almost not be allowed to make that example, uh, to use that example as a case in point story, because it has, it's compl- almost entirely irrelevant. Um, from but, it, but, it's, but it will come up. I know when this code change goes in, um, you know, people will raise hell and point at Grenfell. Um, and precisely this conversation has to happen over and over again. Yeah, of course. That's why you have to be prepared. And, and I mean, this, logic doesn't always solve the issue because uh logic you know doesn't convince people necessarily but um yeah i think you gotta you gotta stick to the evidence of of the safety of those by and large and not just uh because yeah otherwise you, you know you can find a horrible example of anything just about anywhere in the world um so those one 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 time instances should never be used as justification for not uh, not even considering a change in code you know there's a funny um well i'm not going to get into the whole conversation of post-truth and post-fact world because that's beyond my scope um but uh, uh u of t professor was describing um this issue of wicked problems mm-hmm. and in doing so had mentioned you know uh the debate around street widening or or um Traffic calming um, is is something where pedestrian planners or planners will say, you know, this saves lives because it slows traffic, which makes the streets safer. Yeah. Um, but often a fire department will come back and say, no, this this doesn't save lives because it slows our response time to an emergency. <laughs> yeah. And so you get two competing, um, you know, uh, risk assumptions and and um, empirical knowledge, um, and. It's that's a really frustrating predicament because you, it's really it's really you know someone will say okay we need to create the you know study and hire a consultant to settle this debate but how do you settle that debate when both sides has a competing value system? Well, there's an there's an easy answer to that is buy smaller fire trucks like they do in Europe <laughs> <laughs> because it's true there's probably issues with the fire department uh, not being able to fit those ginormous trucks through a smaller streets. But that's a design problem. It's not a safety issue. You either design the streets to somehow still be able to accommodate those trucks, or you just start buying smaller trucks for those instances where you can't fit the big ones. Um, but I, I don't think, again, that's I don't think that's necessarily a, a strictly a safety issue. It's a, it's a logistical problem that certainly has a solution. And as a society. You know, you were talking about post-truth and not wanting to get into that debate, but I think we have to get into that debate because uh, without necessarily being controversial, but we live in a world, I think it's always been true to a large extent, but it's become more and more um, visible. We live in a world where information is biased and it always was biased to an extent, but the problem is 
um, is that with modern uh, contemporary media, they have access to analytical tools that they never had access to before. And what that means is that for anyone who puts out, say, the news, they can an anal analyze uh, the effect of any headline over thousands of viewers with a level of granularity that they never had access to before. So you, what that means, you can literally figure out which headlines will get the more clicks or the most clicks. And so because we're wired, evolutionarily speaking, to respond to drama and, and un, un, um, unforeseen events and circumstances and, and unusual news, basically what that means is that the, the media are producing news that directly tap into our, our subconscious or unconscious desire to, to, um, to respond to things that are unusual. Whereas, you know, a, a moderately written news headline will not attract anyone attention because it's not, it doesn't stand out. And so I think the, to go back to the idea of post-truth and wicked problems, um, we have to become attuned to the fact that media is biased, media are biased more than ever before because they have access to that analytical data that enables them to produce content that people want to click on at a subconscious yeah. level. And we're not equipped to fight with that because you, you, we don't have time to spend uh, any amount of time looking at a deadline, uh, a headline and think, is that trying to manipulate me to click? And so we don't because people have lives to live. Mm -hmm. And so there's an asymmetry of um, power in some sense where we're bombarded with uh, grandiose, bombastic, dramatic headlines that make everything sound like it's way worse than it is. Um, and so I'm not sure how that ties into what you were saying, but you know, when you're trying to convince people that your code change could be good for the, the country and the cities as a whole and solve a whole bunch of problems in, in, in the process, uh, you have to be equipped to debunk those specious arguments that people are going to make and say, oh, you're just trying to create a whole bunch of Grenfell Towers. Mm -hmm. Like, no. And this is what the data tells me. What you're saying is false, and I can prove it. Because if you don't do that, people that are going to. The, the other that requires the opposite, the opposing party to be willing to come to the table and have an adult, you know, have a discussion. That is true. That I is am, entirely true. Um, but you can. You, that's what, yeah. it, I just read a book uh, that addresses all of that. It's called Loser Think. Okay. And I, I strongly advise you and anyone who listens to this to read it because it's going to equip you with some tools persuasion-based tools to um, to decide when it's time to walk away from an unproductive conversation or how in uh, subtle and, and not confrontational ways you can try to convince people that your idea may be not as dumb as it seems. Because mm -hmm. um, it's important, right? You, you have a great idea, you're doing great work. And I think it, it you not just you, everyone who does anything similar to what you do. And it's true for what I do professionally as well. We have to be equipped to be able to convince people that all new ideas are not necessarily bad. And, you know, there's precedents out there that we can study. And then there's, these could be the benefits we gain from changing this or that, because you're going to do it one step at a time. You're not going to convince everyone that, uh, 
um, you're correct, but, uh, you know, one domino knocks down another one. And before you know, you have enough support to, um, to support your, your idea and your change. Anyway, that's, that's a bit of a digression into, no, it's uh, fine. I mean, I, I've since, since this, um, this work has started, I found myself reinstalling Twitter yeah. which is very involuntary and reluctant. Mm -hmm. Um, but <laughs> partly because, uh, Mike Eliasson, who's a, an architect in Seattle uh, and a really strong advocate, um, you know, for the single stairs, um, he, he's always on Twitter. He's, you know, he's the guy that, that posted about straw bill, um, just yeah. earlier. And I find myself actually surprised by how, uh, intelligent, Twitter can be. And that just simply, I mean, perhaps it's an echo chamber because I just follow a bunch of other architects. Um, but uh, I, I might speculate, and I'm sure my professors at McGill will resent me for saying this, but I learn more on Twitter scrolling during my, you know, 30 minute uh, metro ride every morning than I did in a three hour lecture at university. Um, so we might be in a, you know, post truth, post fact era, but um Twitter's been good to me. Yeah, and and I think Twitter. I haven't been on Twitter in a few years. I deleted my account, but I think Twitter. There's kind of two Twitters. There's the uh, cesspool of trolls Twitter <laughs> that uh, you really don't want to engage with because it's just a bunch of angry people, um, either actively trolling, so they don't even mean what they say, but they just want to get a rise out of you, or they're just plain dumb and they don't really think for themselves and just repeat. Um, what they heard elsewhere as if it were truth. And there is a civilized Twitter, Twitter, I think on very specific topics, like maybe what you're doing, where you'll have intelligent conversations with people who know what they're talking about and you can learn a lot from it. So I'm not a big fan of social media, but I think used the right way can be a very effective tool. You just have to know how and when to do it. Yeah, um, but the we, we're not in a post-fact world because there's a simple reason for that architecture is still very much a real life based discipline. We're building buildings with materials and if they're not built properly, they're going to fall down and kill people. Um, so you're only in a post fact world. Once the building code is not like, you know, once, if you didn't have to apply the building code, you might be in a post fact world, but obviously we do. And hence, you know, yeah. In a um, way. So, so the idea that facts don't matter and, and you know, laws of science be damned, uh, some people may think that way. And I think it's a tiny minority anyway. Um, but the uh, the reality is that uh, those people will get hurt in the real world, whether it's literally or figuratively, um, because you cannot, you know, if we're as long as we live in physical bodies made of matter, you can't escape the laws of physics at some point. Intellectually, you can live in, in the fantasy you, you decide to live in, but at some point you have to engage with the real world and that's where the rubber meets, meets the road, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. So you just mentioned uh, this guy in Seattle and, and uh, one of my questions was, what's really special about Seattle? Yeah, um, well, Seattle is a really cool city. Uh, it rains a lot, but it's it's a cool place. But what's no, it's exciting about Seattle is Seattle is the only jurisdiction in North America uh, that lets you build to six stories with a single stair. Mm -hmm. um, they have a specific, uh, they call it the Seattle Special, and they, they added specific requirements to the Seattle Building Code way back in 1977. 
uh, to let you do these kind of, you know, point access blocks. And yeah. so um, what's really exciting too, of course, is that when you look at, you know, those dependencies of why is the code the way it is in Canada? Well, Seattle has a history of wood construction. Seattle has a history of suburban sprawl. So culturally and contextually, Seattle's, you know, I mean, it's right on against the border with, with BC. It's a really good reference and precedent for the kinds of, you know, code change we're talking about mm-hmm. because, um, you know, I can, I can talk about codes in Asia and in Europe all day long. Um, but that might just, you know, go over someone's head or, or seem, uh, un, unhelpful when you're talking in a North American context. Yes. Yeah, Seattle's, Seattle's close had, to home, right? Seattle's close to home. Exactly. And they've had it for, you know, over 40 years. And there's really, there's some beautiful examples of these single stair projects being built. Uh, probably my favorite one, um, is the Capitol Hill urban co-housing, which, um, I got in touch with the architect that designed this, uh, it's again, co-housing. So they, they designed it, they live in it. Their office is on the ground floor. Like, it's just a dreamy um, story. Um, And when I talked to them, one of the questions was, did you look at, you know, the code alternative of if you had to put two stairs or how, you know, in your massing options, how did you guys kind of go through this? Mm -hmm. Um, And they they wanted to do it as co-housing, which meant that they found a bunch of other families with limited capital. Um, So in a way, it was really about affordability as well. And single stair design that, that ended up getting built uh, has nine units, but they were looking at what would be um, required if they had to put two stairs and they were only able to actually fit six units. So you lose three units in that scenario. Yeah. It's 50%. That's, in, that's crazy. It's, that's huge. Right. And, yeah. and then th- what that does to your, you know, costs, your construction costs and your performa, um, you know, and then, these are his words. We no longer would have been able to house the people we wanted to house in this project and probably needed to look for, you know, a higher income group of people. Um, so there's, there's, you know, the questions of cost. And then also, if you look at this project, I mean, it's just a beautiful, um, the way the circulation works uh, is beautiful. There's this wonderful axonometric drawing um, that just shows how everything kind of comes together. Uh, and it's really aspirational. Um, and for me, when I saw this, just incredible, you know, for someone living in Vancouver, this must be so frustrating to know that just across the border, you can do it. Um, but in Vancouver, one cannot. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at at the, the website of the architect. It's pretty cool. Um, and so it's interesting uh, that Seattle has allowed that. You said they introduced that rule in the 70s? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, I spoke with some people from Seattle's building code department uh, and they added the rule in 1977 uh, because at the time they were, you know, Seattle similar in the way that lots uh, and, you know, planning was laid out in, in North American Canadian cities. Um, you know, suburban single family lots are being developed in this, in the closer into the city, you have these small lots. Um, and so, really tight floor plans, really tight ability to, um, you know, fit something into it. And I guess in the 1970s, they realized and they started having conversations with the fire department about, can we create a regulatory condition in which single stair is allowed? And what came out of that is a bunch of really good rational rules to say, okay, in the current code, the life safety says you need two stairs. How can we write a code that lets you have one stair, but is arguably as safe or more safe than what's currently, you know, allowed. And so what they added was they said, 
Okay. These buildings need to be sprinklered. These buildings, the stair needs to be pressurized. And pressurization is all about, um, so you blow air into the stair to sort of positively pressurize it to keep smoke out. Mm -hmm. um, which for that scale of building with two stairs is not a requirement. Um, they increase the fire ratings. And the biggest thing is that they set a maximum limit. And this is really similar in a lot of the European jurisdictions. You cannot have more than four dwelling units, four apartments on each floor, mm -hmm. which, which is also in terms of livability, livability, sorry, quite nice because then it's a bit more, it's more intimate. Your units are all on corners. Um, and it has a whole bunch of other implications for the kind of scale and, um, yeah, maybe less anonymous kind of culture of the, that building. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So has there been any studies of the impact of that rule in Seattle since it was implemented? Uh, studies? I No, not, not that I've come across any studies. Um, Because what code, would be interesting is to see the post and pre and post rule Seattle and see how it, the city has changed and been impacted. And I guess it's hard to measure because it, ideally you'd run an experiment in parallel with two cities, one with the rule, one without, but we don't really have so that luxury. A, studies are interesting because studies rely on data. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that I've been you know, constantly said, you need to go do this is um, look at the fire, fire statistics, you know, injuries and deaths across Canada and the US um, and in Europe and to say, okay, um, in, in jurisdictions where you can do this or even just for that building type, um, is it safer? But the problem is, is that fire statistics, you know, in Canada, for instance, um, the way the, the statistics are collected is in categories. So you're either in a category, which is multi-unit building below five stories or up to mm -hmm. five stories and multi-unit building above five stories, which means that a six-story building and a 30-story, you know, tower are tabulated in the same way. And it's, it's, it's impossible Um, is what I've been told by um, some people that do this for a living. It will be impossible to really extract the concrete, a solid argument from these statistics mm. uh, about this issue. And in the question of Seattle, uh, even though since 1977, you know, the, the single stair has been legal, the reality is, is that, I mean, there are dozens of these buildings, but there aren't many, you know, there aren't thousands. It's not the predominant building typology of the city in the way that in Berlin or, or Paris or you know, Barcelona, it's, yeah. the, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it's culturally the norm. And that's, you know, that's a whole other conversation around what is the minimum scale of development that people deem profitable? What is the acceptable profit margin? What is the, um, I mean, just a whole bunch of other questions around land assembly, everything else. So, uh, yeah, it would be really easy if, if we could go to Seattle and, you know, just drive down the street and every building was one of these single stair specials. Um, but they're actually quite, they're kind of gems hidden in the midst. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure there's still something to learn from it, but it's also, um, it's a it's a very locale specific issue, right? You You would have to, adapt the rules to every province or every city uh, because they don't have all the same needs. Like Montreal has a lot of two, three story walk-ups with like a couple units per floor. So they have much more of that low mid rise or, or, or low high low rise typology yeah. that allows them to have a lot 
greater density than single family homes that you see predominant yeah. in most of Toronto. Um, it's funny, like I live in Montreal right now yeah. and I did this, I've been doing this research entirely while, while living here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of smile at the fact that Montreal's the place in Canada that, you know, needs this code change perhaps the least precisely because it has a, a really good housing stock of triplexes. Um, yeah. And, but what's also funny is once you start to go in depth about that, um, you know, the triplex has this kind of winding steep exterior stair at the front and these spiral, you know, fire escapes at the back, which today with the modern code and the riser run, you know, slope of stairs, um, you, you cannot do, but there's yeah. some really amazing examples from architects that are, have done triplexes, new construction today. And they've been really smart about finding ways to conform with those current safety requirements uh, in Montreal. Um, but the biggest lesson I think that comes from Montreal is, you know, Montreal is colder in winter than uh, Toronto or Vancouver, and it snows more than Toronto and Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But exterior stairs are totally part of, are totally acceptable means of egress. Uh, but if you go talk to, a, you know, an architect in Toronto and say, you're going to put an exterior stair, everyone gets really worried because that just seems irrational or unreasonable or super unsafe um but in montreal they're they're they're, they're part of they're just ingrained is that I'm, a I'm cultural thing or is that a code st- thing because our say if you wanted to do ex- uh, external stairs in toronto can you do that or that is that not allowed so explicitly in the building code yes you can do exterior stairs but once you sit down and i only know this evidence anecdotally once you start to sit down with you know, authorities and uh, perhaps a a fire um, Mm -hmm. inspector or plans reviewer, sometimes you actually have to explain to them what the difference is between a fire escape and an exterior stair. Um, And oftentimes that becomes a frustrating, you know, long drawn out headache. Uh, And there's a bunch of other just slight perceptions and, and sort of ingrained assumptions. Um, but explicitly in the code, yes, you can do exterior stairs. Um, it's just not a conventional practice. Yeah, I see. Um, the la- one of the last questions I had for you, we haven't talked about it, is uh, scissor stairs. Aren't those <laughs> the solution to the problem? So scissor stairs are, are, are efficient. Um, and in Canada, scissor stairs count as two exits. Uh, but in the U.S., actually, uh, scissor stairs do not. So scissor stairs are only allowed to count as one. Um, and scissor stairs are you know, really cheap and efficient ways to build. Uh, pretty much every, uh, every condo glass tower in Vancouver is a scissor stair building. Mm-hmm. But one comment I would give about scissor stairs is, you know, um, it's fine when you're in a tall building and you use the elevator anyways. But to carry your groceries up a scissor stair or to ever uh, bump into your neighbor on a scissor stair is not going to happen. And in buildings that are three or four stories, you know, five stories, six stories, these kind of missing middle mid-rise scale buildings, a scissor stair actually will has a huge impact on the cost and the quality of the building. Um, because you have that corridor separation, stair uses up more space. Um, and because these projects are so non-competitive already, uh, the, really the difference in your design between a scissor stair and a single stair um, has a really huge impact. 
But obviously, if you're doing a 10-story tower or a 20-story tower, yeah, the scissor stair is the most rational um, thing to be doing in the code in Canada. So there's a qualitative aspect to um, the stairs as well. Like if you want to build better housing stock, um, because a lot of those interactions happen in the stair, you were mentioning like bumping into your neighbors or helping the grandma that lives upstairs with their groceries. Um There's a, there's I think there's a qualitative component that we haven't talked about that's really important in the in the way those buildings are built because maybe if you don't have two stair requirements you can put I don't know 10 or 15 percent more surface area into the main staircase to make it more of a social component of the building isn't that the case uh, yeah ab absolutely um, when stair you know corridor separation is a, is a really detailed question about whether that stair is open to a landing or not. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond just the conversation of cost and floor plan efficiency and being able to, you know, unlock smaller lots and smaller sites to actually be able to develop on them, there's this whole other conversation about livability. Um, that with a single stair, you get these units that can be you know, through units. So daylight on both sides and cross ventilation. Mm -hmm. um, and Mike Ellison actually brought up something which I hadn't thought about Yeah, which is the question of urban noise. So if you're in a condo building on, on a you know arterial street in Toronto and you have one orientation, one side gets, you know, and say it's north-south orientation, one side gets a lot of all the noise from the traffic and all the sun, and the other side gets neither. Um, yeah. Well, you see it in Paris or even in France a lot, where you have those um There are multiple buildings, but they form an entire block. And then there's a big courtyard in the middle. Yeah. Um, the street in the front is very busy. And, and that's usually where you have like your kitchen and living room. And then yeah. the bedrooms are on the courtyard side oh, yeah. where yeah. everything is super quiet. And you still get a bit of sunlight and some direct ventilation. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. It's a way more livable you know, way to build. And I'm just I'm not surprised that in Canada, um, everyone you know, uh, saves up to the point that their commutes out of the city until they can afford a detached house. Um, and everyone kind of hates condo buildings um, and rails against them all the time because it, it, you know, it's really hard to build a pleasant and nice apartment building in Canada. Um, and that's yeah, the I, I can see that point being very true. Um, I think that was a very interesting conversation. I'm out of questions anyway, but uh, any last words of wisdom or thoughts that you want to share with the audience? Um, yeah, I mean, one thing I'll just mention is that the way that we're talking, we're working on this code change right now is not at all to imply a decrease or deduction in safety. Um, the code change is being developed in ways that it either meets or exceeds the currently acceptable life safety of having two stairs. And there's a really detailed conversation about that. So to anybody that wants to get in touch with me, uh, support the code change, um, Uh, yeah, I mean, go to the website um, and It's you'll see my email address there. correct? Yep, secondegress.ca. Yeah, I'll be sure to uh, put that in the show notes. Perfect. And then maybe one other note is, and this really surprised me, is that when I started to look into the, the codes development system in Canada, um, which is the kind of federal body called the CCBFC, the Canadian Commission on Building and Fire Codes, for a long period of time, there weren't any architects involved in that codes development on those on those committees and so i kind of smiled because if there aren't any architects participating in the development of our codes you know it's, it's mostly engineers 
um, people from the Association of Sprinklers and the Concrete Association and fire marshals. If there's no architects advocating on behalf of architecture, um, it's no surprise that we end up with, with building codes that are architecturally really restrictive. Um, yeah, and probably not leading to great quality architecture too, because that qualitative aspect that architects tend and are known to bring to the table is gone. If you if you ask an engineer how to solve a problem, they're going to go for the most efficient solution, but they're not necessarily going to think about uh, is that a workable solution from a usability and pleasantness perspective? So yeah, you make a hugely valuable point in saying that. Um, and, and those problems can be solved by one body or the other. It really needs to be collaborative, I think. People need to talk to each other and have those difficult conversations. But, you know, look at the facts and, and see. And, I mean, when people collaborate, you can really come up with great solutions and the, where the sum is greater than the sum of its parts, right? Um, and the, the other point I'll add is the, the CCBFC, the, the commission is right now, now, you know, they have a lot on its plate, um, questions around energy and climate. Um, and so right now they're actually having to prioritize really intensely each code change request that they get. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of the way that they prioritize things is that they ask each province, um, you know, what's, an, what's a priority for you and your province right now? And so that's an opportunity for anybody who's, you know, listened to this. Um, uh, there is a, there's the whole discussion that needs to be had in each province to say this would be really beneficial to the supply of housing in this province please you know at the next discussion of provincial authorities with the codes commission emphasize the importance of this code change request because otherwise it will get buried at the bottom of the stack yeah yeah that's a very good point well, I want to thank you very much for uh, taking the time to chat. And we ended up talking for a lot longer than we initially anticipated, which is totally <laughs> fine. It was a very interesting conversation, but um, I think it's time for us to end. Thank you very much. And hopefully this will help you uh, get the word out there as well. And you, and I mean, obviously you don't need my permission, but you're, you sh you're welcome and encouraged to use this podcast once it's released to to get people to engage with the topic, right? Even people who don't know, I think we've covered enough ground today for any newbie to really get a much better understanding of what the issue is and, and how much of a difference that could make. I hope so. I hope so. Well, thank you very much for having me, Arno. Thanks to you and you're welcome. Hey, Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao.